0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, Easter, Its Purpose and Promise, with a message called The Resurrection and the Ascension. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 14, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I wonder if you've ever thought about what a prime minister or her president does every day. Well, I guess they govern, we know that, but how many meetings and how do they enact decisions and how do they implement their agenda? Have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing right now? Well, we know that after his resurrection, he was on earth for 40 days and Matthew records meeting with the disciples and giving them the great commission. Luke records meeting with the Emmaus disciples as well as meeting with the rest of the disciples and Luke says that during that time, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. John records most of the post-resurrection appearances, and these, of course, include appearing with Mary Magdalene, with the disciples in the upper room, and then next to help settle the doubts of Thomas, as well as that long conversation between Jesus and Peter, the one that we know when he continually asks Peter whether he loves him. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that he appeared to more than 500 at one time, and he also spent time with his own half-brother, James. Now, as I read these accounts, it seems to me that Jesus was making sure that everyone was clear on all of the account, that he had risen from the dead, they knew what the Scriptures said, they knew what their mission was to be, they knew they were to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so, I'm assuming it was a very active time in the ministry of Jesus. And when Luke begins the book of Acts, he records Jesus' response to, to one of the questions of the disciples. Is this the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And with that, Jesus tells them not to become fascinated with the actual timeline of future events. This is not helpful. And he makes it clear that this information has not been revealed to them, nor will it be. The Father has fixed these dates, and their focus needs to be elsewhere. They are to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And with that, they will be launched into a worldwide mission to spread the gospel. Keep on focus, he says. Don't get distracted. Your mission will take you eventually to the very ends of the earth. Luke then records what happened next, and that's in Acts 1, 9 to 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I have in the past made the case that if the disciples saw Jesus going up until he was taken out of their sight, then it must be that Jesus has physically gone to heaven. There is an actual physical throne room of God. But what has he been doing since? Well, we do know that Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. We also know that for three years, the risen Jesus mentored Saul so that what Paul wrote comes directly out of his having been mentored by Jesus. So that's one thing that Jesus did after he was raised. He was mentoring Paul. But what else has Jesus been doing? Indeed, what has he been doing since Paul? I know that he's not been raising up more apostles, that's because we know that Ephesians tells us that the apostles have a unique role, that being the laying down of the foundation of the church. And from that foundation, all successive generations are to build on that foundation. You only lay a foundation once. And that still leaves us to ask and to answer the question as to the activity of the risen Jesus in the world today. So let's start with the experience of Jesus and his disciples as is recorded in John 14. You know, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he's going away, but they're confused. Even after he explains it, Thomas still says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. But of course, as we know, things will become plain. After he has risen, he's going to go into heaven. Now, with that in mind, let's read John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, this passage would indicate that Jesus is still right now preparing a place for us. It is as Jesus says, it's in my father's house. It's where Christ himself is. The language here is the language of a bridegroom who builds a home for, for his bride. And, and when it's done, he comes and he gets her and takes her home. Now, I know that this language is not to be intended in a wooden literal manner. I mean, the image here is the image of a, of a great villa in which there were many dwelling places. And I don't think the idea is that, that heaven's going to resemble an ancient villa, but rather that each individual place of all of God's people each individual place is being arranged by Jesus. Jesus knows the exact location on the new earth that he is determined for the dwelling place of each of his followers. And he's arranged it in such a way that he will assure that he will maximize their eternity for his glory. He will maximize their personal interaction with him. Jesus knows that we're now being trained to be ruling and reigning with him. And so our dwelling place, along with our place of ministry and our evident love for Christ is as good as it can be. No detail is being overlooked. Each entrance into the new heavens and the new earth is arranged to fully assist every single individual in maximizing their joy and in ruling with Christ. Now then, this is why Paul would say in Philippians 3 verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And this is also why it's common now for believers when they talk about going to heaven to talk about going home. Yeah, I have a memory of staying in a retreat center, and my ministry assistant had arranged things for Kathy and I. It's like she had noticed every single detail of our lives. You know, I can't have sugar, and so all the snacks that were left in our room were sugar-free. You know, all the details for both Kathy and I had been thought of in advance. I was just amazed. I think that's what Jesus is doing right now. All right, we know he's preparing a place for us, but what else? Well, let's look at an important passage in the book of Hebrews that gives a hint of Jesus' activities. It's Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. Now, the wider context of that passage is comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, who was a priest of God. Jesus, this passage tells us, holds a permanent priesthood. Now to verses 24 and 25. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, right now, Jesus functions as our high priest— The priests in the Old Testament had a number of functions, but their chief function was to lead people into the presence of God. And that's what Jesus is doing today. You know, when Hebrews says he saves his people to the uttermost, it means he saves them in the most complete way possible. He never loses his own. He assures their salvation is permanent and, says Hebrews, he accomplishes this as and because he intercedes for us. That is, Jesus is constantly, never ceasing, as he pleads for his own before the throne of his Father. We have something very similar to that in 1 John 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, many have pointed out that the role of an advocate is the role of a lawyer, someone who makes his case for us. So think of it this way. You have an accuser who is Satan. He notices all your sins. He notices your broken promises, your missed opportunities, and the times you've tried to hide your sins, even from God. And it is not as if Jesus stands up as our lawyer and says, well, look, you know, there are mitigating circumstances. You know, John's trying his best, and he's not perfect, but as a whole, you know, he's been doing better than most and probably even better than expected, and, you know, you got to give him some time in his spiritual development. No, no, this is not how our lawyer pleads our case for us. If that were the case, your advocate would lose your case. Look at the next verse in 1 John 2, and here we're looking at verse 2. John says he is the propitiation for our sins. So his wounds, born for our salvation, plead for us. You know, with every sin that you and I commit, we should rightfully be condemned every single day we live. And yet, Jesus, our advocate, approaches the throne of perfect righteousness and pleads our case by saying, I died for that sin as well. I suffered for that one as I hung on the cross. I bled and I poured out my sin and was punished for that sin as well. You know as Bob Coughlin wrote, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. While my advocate pleads my case before the Father, I can't be banished from his throne. So what do you think? Doesn't that truth want to make you be more holy? I know that such love wants to make me run from all my sin.
0: In the month of June, Dr. Newfeld and a team from Back to the Bible Canada will be traveling to India to join the ministry team of Back to the Bible India to conduct two Bible teaching conferences in both Delhi and Hyderabad. These conferences will attract hundreds of pastors from these regions, from multiple denominations, in search of excellence in the instruction of expositional Bible teaching, and to spend time in worship, fellowship, and offer encouragement amidst challenging and difficult circumstances of ministry. Perhaps this is a ministry venture you'd want to invest in. Your gift towards Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would mean so much in support of this conference, the development and encouragement of pastors in these regions, and the airing of ongoing Bible teaching programs in Asia. To offer your support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: We've been talking about what Jesus is doing in heaven after he has ascended. We noticed that he's preparing a place for us, and we noticed also that he's interceding before the Father on our behalf, and these are blessed truths. The Bible also tells us that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he has inherited a name that is above every name. You know, we need to unpack that, for it's going to give us an insight into Jesus' exalted position. Let's begin with Jesus' high priestly prayer, which you know he prayed just prior to going to the cross. John 17, verse 5 records Jesus praying, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That is, Jesus believed that on the cross, he would bring such glory to God, a glory that was always eternally his. Now, when Peter preached about Jesus on the day of Pentecost, he said, and it's recorded in Acts 232 33, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, there are two important observations to be made from that passage. I mean, one is that Jesus received the promise of the Spirit from the Father, and that he's now pouring out the Holy Spirit on all who believe. That is, Jesus is baptizing his people with the Holy Spirit so that they will remain in him, and so that they will have power to do all that Christ has called them to do. And that's in keeping with Jesus' own words, that he would lose none that the Father had given him, and it's also in keeping with Jesus now interceding for his own. But there's another part of this passage that should equally fascinate us. The passage says that Jesus is now exalted and at the right hand of his Father. Hebrews 1 verse 3 affirms that when it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what does that mean? Well, we can say at the outset that to sit at the right hand of the Father is to sit in the place of authority. You might remember that at one point in Jesus' earthly ministry, there had been a controversy over this very thing. And here I'm reading Mark 10, 35 to 37. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, you might also remember that in consequence to that request, well, the other 10 disciples were indignant, says Mark. So why did that request create such rancor? And the answer has to be that in the world in which they lived, the individual who was seated beside the king was the individual who had been given more power and authority and more glory than anyone else in the entire kingdom. And that's why after this request was given and after the response from the others was harsh and angry and pointed... Jesus taught all 12 that he expected them to be servants and not lords. I mention all of this because that incident should give us an insight into Jesus, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the place of authority over the nations and over the earth. But I know that we still might be confused, and that's because we might ask a rather obvious question didn't Jesus have that kind of authority before he became a man and before he died for our sins and before he was raised? I mean, what can this mean except that Jesus has in some way a place that he has never occupied before? Well, let me give two important considerations. The first comes from Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now again, we might say, well, Jesus was highly exalted before the cross and the resurrection. Well, yes, of course he was, for he was always very God of very God. But please notice that with his redemptive work, Jesus has become the name that every creature confesses. Prior to his redemptive work, the name Jesus was not known to the creation. Now, it is the name that determines the destiny of every single being. Now, with that in mind, let's go to Revelation 5. The scene in that chapter is a drama that takes place before the throne room of heaven. John has described the glory of the throne and the one seated upon it. That was back in chapter 4. But in in chapter 5, the one seated on the throne has a scroll in his hand. The scroll contains the destiny of this earth, the destiny of every single human being, the the outworking of the purposes of God, that is, the way in which God the Father has determined that the earth will eventually be filled with his glory. Then a call goes out in heaven, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That is, who is worthy to put God's purposes for the creation into effect? It might also be asked, who is worthy to sit at the Father's right hand in the place of divine authority and to execute all the plans of the Father? And then, of course, according to Revelation 5, the word is given. The only one worthy to open the scroll is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a reference to the Messiah. And then says John, the Lion of Judah was the Lamb that was slain and was ransomed a people for God from all the nations of the earth. That's what it means for Jesus to take his place at the Father's right hand, and that's also what Jesus is doing right now. He is directing all the affairs of the universe as well as the affairs of the earth so that, in the end, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and in the end, every single believer will come home. It's wonderfully comforting for believers to know that even while the world seems constantly changing and constantly uncertain and even constantly on the verge of catastrophe, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ensuring that the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth and that history is moving forward to the day when Christ returns and all evil is defeated. This then moves us to application. You know, during these last two weeks, I've been speaking about the significance both of the cross and of the resurrection of our Lord. And from these studies, it should be plain to every one of us that the Easter season is the central season to our faith. It is, in my way of thinking, a great tragedy that many North American Christians have allowed Christmas rather than Easter to be the highlight of the year's celebrations. This simply belies the central tenets of our faith. Look, while we do not deny the importance of the Incarnation, that God in His mercy entered into His creation and as a man humbled Himself to be born of Mary in a barn, and so became the Word made flesh who dwells among us, that's that's glorious and beautiful. But this is but the foundation of the story. Easter is the story. Indeed, Easter is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. Easter is the reason why we can be assured of our salvation. Easter is the basis for our faith. Easter is the fulfillment of our faith. Nothing but nothing even comes close to being compared to the importance of Easter. And I long for a day when our yearly celebration of our faith, that is, Easter, is restored to a time of celebration that captures the heart of the Christian community and replaces Christmas as the highlight of the year. But as I have now completed this series on the cross and the resurrection, I'm also reminded of all the points of application. At Easter time, I'm reminded that my sins have been covered in His blood. I'm reminded that I not only desperately need a Savior, but I'm reminded that I have a Savior. I'm reminded that the righteous Father is no longer angry with me, but that His anger has been propitiated on the cross of our Lord. I'm reminded that Satan's grip on me has been smashed, and that the forces of darkness have been defeated, and that they have been publicly humiliated, and that Christ has made a showcase of them. Oh, how glorious! I'm also reminded that my faith doesn't rest on my deeply held beliefs, but rather on the objective ground of an empty tomb. I'm reminded that I'm united with Jesus in His death and His resurrection. I'm reminded that I'm not the child of despair and defeat. I am the child of Christ, and therefore I have hope, even when I face my own death or whatever difficulties lie before me. I'm reminded that the resurrection life of Jesus lives in me right now. I'm reminded that right now Christ is interceding for me. Right now, he's preparing my eternal dwelling place. Right now, he's assuring that I will be faithful in the ministry that he has assigned to me. This is Easter. This is the application of Easter. This is what I believe. And this is what we all believe, who have come to know Christ. And this is why Easter is the highlight of our year. Let's celebrate.
0: John, great message, great series. I just let's recover a little bit of ground. You know, you, you talk about what Jesus is doing right now. And, you know, I know some of us get caught up in sort of this sense of guilt and, and fear of judgment and those types of things. But what is
1: Jesus doing for us right now? Yeah, that's that's everything this message has been about, Ben. And um, I know that this uh, what really moves me more than anything else when I think about Christ's work in heaven uh, at the right hand of the Father is that even now he intercedes for me. And, and i got to tell you, Ben, it just has caused me to rethink everything that I live and how careless I sometimes am and the words that I speak or maybe the actions that I have and to think that over every single thing, that Christ is before the Father, his wounds intercede on my behalf, that he paid also for those sins. And it just makes me want to live for Christ more. It makes me want to be more holy. It makes me want to appeal more to God's Holy Spirit to help me through these hours.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this wonderful Easter series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Gospel of John challenges a new generation to re-examine what it means to live in genuine faith, to live based on the truths Jesus taught. Dr. Newfeld begins Volume 2 of his study on the Gospel of John called, Why Follow Jesus? It calls us to examine our hearts and to ask, why should I follow Jesus? That question drives this ministry, a question that demands an answer. This month, search out that question for yourself as you listen. But also, we invite you to have a copy of Why Follow Jesus on CD for free. And as an added bonus, request a copy in print of the Gospel of John for yourself or to pass on to someone asking questions about Jesus. So call today and request Why Follow Jesus? And as an added bonus, receive a copy of the Gospel of John all for free by simply calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit
1: backtothebible.ca.